Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. And his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with with my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has more will be given, and and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for this day, Lord Father. We give you praise, Father, for calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship of your bride this morning. Lord God, we pray, Father, and give you thanks for our worship so far today, Lord, through singing and through confession, Lord, through hearing your word read. Lord, we pray as we continue to worship you, Lord, through hearing your word proclaimed, And through the Eucharist, Lord, and through more singing, Father, we pray, God, that our worship would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to to believe and to hear and to understand what you have inspired in your word. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, uh, in the parable just before this one, at the beginning of Matthew 25, uh, Jesus... Jesus both warned and encouraged us that his return would be delayed. So then, because of his delay, we were told we should make best use of the time. We, we should be wise and not foolish. We should keep our lamps well-oiled and trimmed and ready. 
Well, here in the parable of the talents, which just continues into Matthew 25, Jesus now elaborates even further upon our responsibility to make best use of the time that we have been given. So if last week's parable was about the necessity of being prepared, this week's parable is about the necessity of not wasting what God has given to us. And usually, and I'm not saying this is the case all across the board, but it, usually there is one typical response, and I know I have said this, right? One typical response that is common to all believers at some point in their walk with Christ when presented with an opportunity to serve the Lord and to serve his bride. And that response is usually something akin to this. I'm not capable of doing that, Lord. I don't have that ability. But listen to how Jesus really contradicts that statement in these first two verses, in these first two sentences. He says, for it, speaking of the kingdom of heaven, so this theme of the kingdom of heaven is continuing from that parable before and even from Matthew 24. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man who was going on a journey, and he calls his servants and entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. And then he went away. So notice, Jesus is directly responding to our excuses of a lack of ability or capability to use the gifts that he has given us to serve him and to serve his bride. And he does this here in these first two verses by detailing two particular actions that the master takes before he leaves to go on a journey. The first one is that this master entrusts his property to these servants. And the second one is that he leaves with each one of them a talent or a number of talents for them to use. Talent here being money, not talent as in a talent like we would understand. <laughs> so entrusted, though, to, to entrust, for a master in this time period in first century Roman Empire, even the century before this, for a master to entrust a servant with his property was not that uncommon in this era. But, again, this is a parable, right? So this is a parable, and we have to remember that with a parable comes Jesus using language like symbolism, and allegory, and simile, and metaphor, in order to describe and illustrate for us the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And kingdom of heaven principles do not make sense from a worldly perspective, from the wisdom of the world. So for almost ten chapters now, Jesus has been illustrating for us how we, as his disciples, have been given responsibility for the kingdom of heaven, for its growth, and for its health. This started in Matthew 16 when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And so here in our parable, Jesus is now expanding upon that promise from Matthew 16 to give his disciples the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And he's showing us here that as his servants, as his disciples, as his people, that he is fully entrusting to us the authority over his most precious possession, which is his church, his bride, and the proclamation of his gospel. Now, let's be honest. That is a hard responsibility to try to grasp a hold of. Right? For any one of us, depending, no matter where we are with our, in our walk with Jesus, that is a hard responsibility to take ownership of. Especially when really, let's be honest, all we want to do is kind of be lazy and to use our excuses and to let someone else do it for us. Right? That guy will do it. He's better at that than I am. Right? But thankfully, our God is merciful. But our God also knows us, and he knows what we're capable of, even if we don't know what we're capable of. 
This means that our God also knows our potential. And here in these first two verses, Jesus is immediately removing any excuses that we could make over our lack of abilities or our lack of capabilities to serve him and to serve his bride. And so we see here that this master entrusts his property to his servants by giving each of them a specific amount of talent. Again, talents. He gives one five talents, one two, and another one, according to the ability of each of them. Now this amount of money is meant to be shocking. The wages, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, but a, a, the wages for a general day laborer, just some guy going out into a field to work, was usually only a denarii at most. Now for us, we don't have any understanding of how, what that monetary amount is, right? But, but a denarii is worth, excuse me, a talent is worth 6,000 denarii. So if you're looking for a day's worth of wages, a talent is the equivalent of 20 years' worth of money. That's a lot of money, right, in one day, if, you, if this guy is giving out one talent. So what this master has done then, among these three servants, is that he has given them over 200 years' worth of wages. That's an obscene amount of money. And this is an obscene amount of money for a laborer that is working paycheck to paycheck. Right. This isn't just enough money to make a person wealthy. This is enough money to set up his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren to be wealthy for their entire lives. This is 200 years worth of money. But notice that even though the amount of money is shocking, giving this amount of money to, these, to his servants is not a concern for this master because he knows his servants. He trusts his servants. He understands what he's handing over to them. But at the same time, he also knows what he expects back from them. These servants are given these talents in order to go out and to expand the influence and the authority of his property. He wants his property to grow. He wants his investment to compound and to get bigger. And so he evaluates each of these servants' ability in order to properly manage and to handle whatever he has given to them. And so let's look at how these servants use those talents. Let's look at how they use these talents according to their abilities. What happens here? So again, we read, So he, the one that had received the five talents, went at once and he traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents went and made two talents more. But the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the driving factor here behind this whole parable is the fact that this master has gone away. It's his absence. Remember, he gives them this money and then he goes away. And so while the master is away, two of these servants go out and they use their talents and literally double the investment. They do a good job. Right? But, but one of them, instead of doing anything with it, he goes and he digs a hole in the ground and he buries it and he hides it away. Now this idea of burying money seems kind of weird to us, right? I mean, that's odd, <laughs> right? Why would you go and bury money in the ground, right? But it's not unheard of. Honestly, it's not unheard of in this culture as much as it's not unheard of in our own, right? I'm sure many of you, like myself, have had conversations with family members that lived through the Great Depression that hid money all around their property, right? When they had it, what little they had, they would hide it, right? Um, I have friends now that I know that don't use a bank. They keep their money 
in, you know, in the safe or, or at home or in the freezer or in their mattress, right? They keep it hidden. But we even read a similar principle of this in Matthew 13 over the summer in the parable of the hidden treasure, which reads like this. It's Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. He buried it again. And then he went in his joy and sold everything that he had, and then he bought that field. So burying valuables in a field is not an unheard of principle. So with that idea of keeping something valuable safe, based upon what we know so far, right, in verses 14 through 18, not including what we know with the rest of the parable, for a minute pretend you don't know that, right? This seems to suggest that maybe this third servant has actually made a pretty prudent move, right? His master gave him money he wanted to protect. So you know what? I'm going to protect it. I'm going to hide it. I'm going to bury it and hide it. He's protecting what the master had given to him. To quote Gandalf in The Fellowship of the Ring, he's keeping it secret and he's keeping it safe. Burying our gifts guarantees us absolutely no loss. But it also guarantees us no gain. Jesus' absence until his second advent might be the driving force behind this entire parable. But the purpose of this parable is that Jesus expects us to use the gifts that he has given us by investing our gifts through our time and through our efforts, working for his kingdom and working for his bride. So let's ask ourselves an important question here in relation to this third servant who hides this talent. Did the master then, did he fail to properly judge the ability and the capabilities of this servant? I think it's a valid question. The answer to which I would say is an absolute no. (laughs) This servant's action of burying this talent is one of deliberate disobedience. God has not given us gifts to hide them. He's not given us responsibilities to keep them locked away. He's not given them to us to keep them unused or gathering dust. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are not meant to hang on the key ring by the door. They're meant to be used, and they're meant to be used to glorify Christ. But, you know, hypothetically, right, some might say, I mean, especially in our own culture today, some might, say, some might try to pity this third servant a little bit. They might try to take his side, and they might say something like, maybe, just maybe, maybe the master didn't fully understand his servant. Maybe the master has wronged him by placing too many expectations upon him. This is this is classic example of somebody not only being mean, but forcing his will upon somebody else. I mean, think about it. Maybe this master didn't take into consideration that this servant had issues with, like, social expectations. Or or he has issues with physical strength. Maybe he's physically weak, and he, he can't do anything with it. Maybe this master didn't understand this servant's personal likes and dislikes. Obviously, the master is at fault. No. No. Jesus knows us. He knows his servants. He knows where we are weakest and where we are capable. But he also knows our potential despite our weaknesses. Paul would write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12 that God, his power is made perfect in our weakness. So then, Paul tells us, he says, gladly boast in your weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon you. We have each been given gifts 
in order to expand the influence and the authority of the kingdom of God and to glorify Christ. And so our responsibility is simply to use them, not to bury them, not to hide them, and not to store them in a safe place. Failure to use our gifts simply is both sin and wickedness. And we see that with the rest of this parable. And so with that context set up, let's look at this giant section of the parable that's left. And we'll just what we'll do is we'll go through it section by section, just looking beginning with these first two servants, starting in verse 19 to 23, which begins here now. This key word now, right? In the New Testament, you see now, you should circle it, right? Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled his accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had, had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We'll stop there for a minute. So again, as we see here, right, these, these first two servants, they approach the master in humility. Right? There's an interesting word here in verse 20, this word bringing. If you're a Bible highlighter or underliner or note taker in your Bible, this is a great word to write out in the margins in the circle. Because this word, especially in Matthew, is a term often used for presenting or offering a sacrifice to God. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, we read with the coming of the Magi, they bring or they offer Christ gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is an offering to God. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, we read as Jesus' fame spreads throughout the land, people bring to him or offer to God those who are sick those who are afflicted with diseases and oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he heals all of them. They have been sent to God as an offering. Paul would echo this in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, where he tells us to present or to offer our bodies as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice that would be wholly acceptable to God, and that is our spiritual worship. So these two servants here in these verses they have understood, they've properly discerned what their master had entrusted to them, what he had invested in them. And they have been wise. They've made best use of the time that they had been given in his absence. And so now they are able to come to him in humility and offer to him sacrifices that are worthy of him. And what we are to do, the lesson here is that we are to do the same with the gifts that Christ has given to us to build up his church. And then we are to turn around and to offer them right back to him, the one that has given them to us. But the master's meeting with this third servant is completely different. As we've already established, this is an act of deliberate disobedience based on this third, that, the third, that this third servant has done. So remember, he's done nothing with his talent. And so as he comes forward, he compounds, honestly, his, his wickedness here. And he, he blames his idleness on his master. Listen to what he says in the next couple of verses. So he who also had received the one talent came forward and saying, Master, 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. This is a purely defensive response. He knows he hasn't done what is expected. Right? Anybody, and I know I did this a lot as a kid, right? but anybody that has had kids, raised kids, grandkids, or been a kid, like all of us in the room, you make up an excuse when you do something wrong. right? Somebody else made me do it. it was, was it Flip Wilson from the 70s and 80s that had that, that bit of the devil made me do it? Right? Um, I watched that as a kid. Right? I'm, I'm aware of the reference. <laughs> but I didn't just find that online. I've, seen, I've actually seen it. But this is a defensive excuse. He hasn't done anything. And so what he does then is he attempts to say, he attempts to claim fear as the reason. But this is a paper-thin excuse. But don't, don't, don't miss this point, though, in, in what he says here to this master. His attack upon his master's character goes even farther than just claiming that he was afraid. This is fake. This is a fake fear. He's not scared of his master. Because he, he utters this phrase. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. In the Greek, this, this can translate to one simple word. This can translate to the word merciless. Master, I knew you to have no mercy. And so with this one phrase, what he's doing is calling his master a thieving tyrant who goes out and without mercy steals from people and doesn't care who gets hurt in the process. I don't know about you, but my reading of Scripture tells me that the words thief, tyrant, and merciless are words that are, that are the farthest from the character of God. God, in his word, through Moses, tells us that, God, that he is slow to anger. And he is abounding in a word that is called hesed, which is steadfast love and mercy. And God has shown us his steadfast love and mercy through the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he's shown us his steadfast love and mercy by adopting us through Christ as sons and co-heirs with Christ. God is not a thieving tyrant who is merciless. And the one who claims to belong to Jesus, but then blames Jesus for their failure to use their gifts, is calling God a merciless tyrant. And they prove themselves unworthy of his kingdom. Last week we read where Jesus, as the bridegroom, does, does not know the one who is foolish and unprepared. This week we see that the one who is wicked does not know Christ as his master and his Lord. And so what the, the master does then is he rightly responds with a condemnation of the servant. And he condemns him with his own words. He says this in verses 26 and 27. He says, he says you are a wicked and slothful servant. You are lazy. You know. And he asks, he does this as a question. He says, well, you, you know that I reap where I don't sow and where I gather where I've scattered no seed. Do you really know that? Well, if you did, then you should have at least gone and taken my money to the bank and put it in a savings account that had at least a decent interest rate so that I could have at least gotten some interest back when I showed up. And so with this, with, with, by condemning him with his own words, this master is reminding the servant, he said, you're not afraid of me. You don't fear my wrath. You don't fear my character. You don't fear the work I do. You're just wicked and you're lazy. You're a bum. This is the person that is a fool that says in his heart that there is no God. This is a fool that says in his heart that Christ's delay for over 2,000 years almost 
means that Christ is just not going to come back. This is exactly how Paul describes the lazy among the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians. Listen to what he says in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. He says, For even when we were with you, speaking of himself and Timothy and, and, and Titus and a few others, he said, We would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, then let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not being busy at work, but being busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If this servant knew that his master was harsh and demanding, and if fear was actually and truly paralyzing him from doing what he should be doing, then he should have, at the very least, been wise enough to realize that hiding a talent in the ground isn't going to do anything. You could have at least taken it to a bank. Even in first century Israel area, there were banks. Banks were, are not a brand new thing. So you could have taken this to a bank and gotten back interest when I showed up. If you weren't going to use it, then at least you could invest it and let it work for itself. So this reminds us that our gifts are not our own. They belong to the kingdom of heaven, and they belong to Christ. So we can, at the very least, invest in the kingdom by investing in the church through our tithes of money and time and our resources. We can invest in others who are capable of using their gifts to expand the influence of the kingdom of heaven. And to fail to do something even as simple as that is disobedience to Christ. And so unlike the first two servants, this final servant receives not a reward, but he receives a full condemnation in the rest of this passage. The master says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who brought me ten talents. And he says, for everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have so much he'll have in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So let's return to that question from earlier about the master's assumptions about this servant. Has the master failed to understand this servant? Has he failed to take into consideration this servant's personal objections to things like, I don't know, talking about Jesus to his friends or a mission trip or even talking to a stranger randomly? No, this master has not failed. The problem is never an inconsiderate or over-demanding Lord. The problem is with a wicked, lazy, and slothful servant. And so note here, interestingly, this, this single talent of the master's original investment in this wicked servant is taken away from him and is given to the one who brought ten with him. So notice, though, the master, he equates, this is what's interesting, he equates now that one talent to the one who had earned ten. He gives him full possession of both. These rewards are now fully in the servant's possession. He, he owns them now. He's been given to them by the mercies and grace of his master. He has handed them possession of them completely over to the servant who was wise and who was faithful. And so this might seem unfair to our modern ears, right? We should, we should spread the wealth around, right? We should spread our resources around so everybody has the equal amount. But 
It's the wicked servant who bears responsibility for his laziness and his foolishness, not not the master and not the one who did what he was supposed to do. Chrysostom writes here in the 4th century, he says, Since this one did nothing with his one talent, even that one is taken away and given to a more productive partner. And he asks a question, Chrysostom, he says, What does this mean for us? It means one who is given a gift by God is given it so that others may profit from it. The one who uses their gift or gifts diligently will gain even more of the gifts in abundance. Just as an inactive, foolish, and wicked servant will lose what he has received, so then let us labor to add to our talent. Those who reject Christ in the kingdom of heaven will lose everything they have. And just like this wicked servant, those who reject Christ prove themselves completely worthless and useless and devoid of any redeeming value. People lose, like this, people like this lose not only their reward, but they, they lose an internal inheritance in Christ. And so the purpose of this parable is as straightforward as the parable from last week on the parable of the ten virgins. Last week, again, we were reminded that to be wise by being prepared. This week, Jesus reminds us that we are to be wise by using the gifts that God has given to us. And he also tells us that there is absolutely no place in the kingdom for a lazy follower of Christ. Now, apathy, if we're being honest, is completely and clearly a danger that we are all tempted to fall into. But as Jesus illustrates here, when he returns, every one of us will be held accountable for how we have lived and used the gifts that he has bestowed upon us. Those who claim Christ but hide away what he has entrusted to them, will have to answer to him for their misuse of the resources that he has provided for them in his mercy. And so God has entrusted to us his resources, and he expects us to make good use of them. So notice in the response from this master here at the end, that the first two ser- of the first two servants, he doesn't evaluate these two servants, these good servants, by the quantity that they had produced but by how they had used what he had given them faithfully. So make use of the gifts that God has given to you. You may have received one talent, or you may have received five. But the concern of Jesus in this parable, what he's telling us is that he's not concerned about how much you gain, but rather how you use what you have been given. But also, we are not to disparage our fellow servants for how many talents they've been given or how they use them. But rather, we are to make use of the gifts that God has given to us, regardless of the amount of gifts that he has given to us. But even further, as this third and wicked servant illustrates, we are not to disparage our Lord for the gifts that he has graciously given to us. Jesus, I don't like that gift. Don't give me that gift. (laughs) That's not the point. He has given this gift to you because he knows you. And he knows what you can handle, but he also knows your potential. And so use the gifts that God, through his mercy and his grace and his love, has given to you to build his kingdom and to glorify his name and offer each of them back to him as a sacrifice so that you too will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now I will lift you up and set you over much and enter into the joy of your master. Amen.